0: And the opposite is exchanging by what? Tear. Weight.
1: T-A-R-E. Tear. Tear
0: weight. And we are thinking of monetary metals like gold and silver, which could be exchanged by weight, when you've got to weigh the amount before you can make the exchange. But it's something comparable to the invention of the wheel when you can jump from exchanging by weight to exchanging by tail. And in this context, tail means counting. Okay, counting, you have identical coins and you pay by tail. This means you count out as many coins as agreed. Now just compare the ease, the simplification where you can buy by counting out coins to the trouble which you have to go to if you pay by weight. And that is something which we should keep in mind. The second greatest invention of is the coin. First is the wheel, <laughs> second is the coin, because it made pur- purchases so much simpler Standardized. than exchanging by weight. And incidentally, that is the source of government interference because you have to have an authority which, which uh, guaranteed the weight of the individual coins. Otherwise, paying by tail doesn't make sense. If you have unequal coins, you can count it forever. You will never come up with the right amount. So you need an authority and by the way, that's why private coinage more or less failed because there was no guarantee. It could be easily counterfeited because only the government could punish counterfeiters. Mm-hmm. If you are a private issuer of coins, you cannot catch up with the counterfeiter and punish him. That takes legislation. So. That's just my little bit of wisdom which I wanted to add to.
2: That. Well, before, before I go on to the origin of interest, I, that is a good point that the Professor is making, that you need to, counting by, sorry, exchanging by counting as <coughs> opposed to by measuring mass is obviously a lot, it's a lot easier, but then it also brings up some trickery that the, the person who's determining these ratios can uh, come up with. And one example of a coinage that didn't have any state behind it was the trade coinage called the ducat. Now the ducat is around three and a half grams of uh, 23, uh, is it 23? Uh, it is, it's purer gold than 22. But the ducat was a trade coinage issued by lots of different countries. But,
0: but, but it started <laughs> with Venice, so originally, originally there was an authority. But by
2: convention you could use a ducat and it was very well understood what a ducat yeah. was. You know, so it's not like, it might have been the origin, but in the practice you have all of the, the Scandinavian states issuing ducat trade coinage, Dutch states, so they all issued a ducat, you know? So, they can, you can't do it, you know? You don't, you don't, the, there is a precedent that says that you can do it, you know?
1: And, and they used their power to counterfeit, just to undermine the next city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh,
0: that's right, that's right. Okay.
1: Which, well, I mean, that, that's all belonging to the subject of, 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 of um, the origin of, of money and the mischief it, it can evoke. Um, we will we'll surely have to discuss this any further.
2: We've got an hour. We have an hour,
1: we have an hour after yeah. this, so, so we will continue this.
2: So this will be uh, roughly 40, 40 minutes, this lecture. Uh, but we'll be going through some points that have already been talked about, um, and because we need to do that in order to to to, to develop the concept of the uh, the origin of interest, and uh, this is this is an example. We talked. Uh, Bernadette talked about indirect exchange and barter. Um, but it's important to, to realise that bar- barter is, is a sufficient is a sufficient process uh, to develop uh, or, or to figure out how money how money came about the most marketable the most marketable good. So take this um, this this exchange here. Someone has um, surgical instruments, and they want to obtain Sanskrit literature for them, you know. So, Good luck. <laughs> the, person, the person who has um, surgical instruments has to find someone who has Sanskrit literature um, but wants surgical instruments. And uh, not only that, you know, um, they have to be of the right, you know, the right form of surgical instruments, you know, maybe only certain types of Sanskrit literature, you know, so all of these things are a sort of pre-given, um, given, um, before exchange even happens, if it happens, okay? So, I've called it direct exchange here. Um, this, this might happen, it might not happen.
0: That's what Bernadette uh, called double coincidence. Double coincidence of Where what? A
2: single coincidence yeah. is, is no good. It's no good, it's no good. Okay? So you don't... Um, just, think about, just think about if you do actually want to do this transaction. Okay? You cannot find someone in possession of Sanskrit literature. So, you have to find a way of, of basically getting past this, this problem. There might be someone with Sanskrit literature who is willing to exchange it for surgical instruments, um, but you're not, you're not likely to find them. That's the point. You're not likely to find them. You won't find them, ever. Okay. So... Um, you have to take this step, this process, slightly further, but not in a more complicated manner. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes, easier. Okay. So, the surgical instruments are swapped um, for a more marketable good, uh, whatever that might be. Now, marketability, you know, it's it's a subjective thing Um, but the point is though that surgical instruments in and of themselves are not a very marketable good. So you need to exchange those for something more marketable in order to achieve your desired end. Why? Because exchange between sanskrit literature and a more marketable good is more likely than exchange between sanskrit literature and a less marketable good it's as simple as that there is no there's no more complexity to that so what you can't do instantaneously exchange Sanskrit instruments, uh, Sanskrit literature for surgical instruments, you basically have to spread out over space and spread out over time. So whatever you're exchanging the surgical instruments for has to be known of across, has to be known of by people. Geographies don't know money. It's people in geographies that know money. So they have to be known of by people across all different geographies because you'll have to scan all different geographies and not only that it has to be um, invariant in terms of uh, of, of value across time to the people whatever you will be exchanging it for will have those properties okay what can't be done instantaneously has to be split you might have to wander far, space or you might have to wait a long time. Time. Okay. So whatever that more marketable object is it will tend to sort of eliminating space as a problem and it will tend to eliminate time as a problem as well. Okay? So all very simple. More More leads on, more the comparative leads to most the superlative, and the most marketable good is what we term as money. So exchanging those surgical instruments (coughs) for money, you can now call that selling those instruments. Sell doesn't mean anything unless it's sell. The principle behind sell is exchanging the good for money. That's what you define by sell. And buy is, well, you can use, you don't need me to tell you what that is. So, gold is a consequence of the barter process. It's the ultimate consequence. Gold and silver. Money is the ultimate consequence of the barter process. And you don't need to with marketability and the process of barter, you don't need anything more to derive a fully coherent theory of of the origin of money and how money evolves. Gold, naturally, gold and silver naturally come out and the process given is here. And it's, it's not difficult to see how the process evolves. So the problems of direct exchange Which assumes that it has to be done there and then is changed into a problem of indirect exchange and you have to whatever that 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 most marketable good is eliminates the the, the problems of geography and time in that exchange okay so the most marketable good um, Bernadette went through this, you know, marketability is a concept, it's not this is marketable and that's not marketable, you know, or, you know, it, it, it's not something that can be ascribed to the object itself, which um, which is a problem for um, non mangarian analysis, It's it's just a problem. Okay, so You realize it's a concept, the object that occupies that concept changes as our consciousness increases, you know. So you will go from maybe if you're talking about large exchange, you might go from cattle to iron pellets to whatever, etc. etc. But ultimately you, you converge at the object gold, and it's gold, silver, then gold, you know, and it's gold. All the way after that, there's no, there's no better object that human human beings know of to satisfy that most marketable object. We just don't know any. We don't know any better substance. And I've talked about this as if this happened, you know, 200 years ago or something. This process happened in unrecorded history. You know, it's not recorded when, when this process was um, expanded. You know, already in Sanskrit literature, you're talking about gold as money, and Sanskrit literature can't be dated. You know, it's so ancient. So take this as, as a given. It had to have happened at some point, but it happened at such a remote history, a remote period in time, you know, that don't even think about it.
1: There's no carbon dating for Sanskrit
2: literature. No, not much. For the paper or the ink. Well, yeah. It's an oral tradition, so you have to listen to your teachers (coughs) rather than. Okay, so now we've got the concept of money and how it's born as the most marketable good, and we can move on from there. For the concept, um, the concept of interest. Now, what is what is the basis behind the existence of interest? What is what is the higher sort of the teleological basis behind the existence of interest? It's merely just an exchange of wealth for income, and income for wealth. Now. Why would someone want to exchange wealth, wealth for income? Well, if you consider someone who's retired and who's built up a a, a nest egg of of goods that they've acquired throughout the uh, centuries, throughout the decades, um, there is a need once you stop working to derive an income from that. Now. In the absence of capital, mar- or in the absence of markets for this, the way, that you would have, um, the way that you would have accommodated that would be by chipping bits of your silver or gold off as and when you needed it. And that's not a very, um, obviously you could have it in coins, whatever, but that's the mechanism by which, in the absence of markets for this, you would have to uh, satisfy your need for income. Now, why would someone need to give up their income for wealth? Well, someone at uh, in in the in in the in, of the, of the younger generation might have a good idea, but doesn't have the the, the, the comfort of billionaire parents or uh, or something of that 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 nature, you know, and can't get their hands on wealth. they need, they need to do some kind of capital project. So they need a way of... But what they do have is earning power because they're, they're that age group and they can still earn without causing much of a problem. So the flip side to that is someone might have income, but they need wealth. So you've got a nice relationship there. People with wealth at some point might need income and people with income... Might need wealth. Okay, so that's that's the basis. That's the basis for the um, for the origin of interest.
0: Well, the immortal gods on Olympus mm-hmm. wouldn't need that, mm-hmm. right? Because they would live forever. Yeah. But we are subject to aging, and that's at the bottom of the problem. The, the problem of aging, losing earning power and mental powers as you age, and then you need something to fall back on. yeah, Because you cannot generate income anymore mm. when you are old.
2: So none of us are uh, Olympian gods, so we, can't, uh, we have to take notice of, of interest, basically. okay. Um, of your pension fund? <laughs> I don't think of that, actually. <laughs> uh, so we'll go uh, and develop interest and how we get there from the bid-offer spread. And Professor talked about this already. So you have uh, you have Offered price or ask. It's called offer in this country, and the bid, and you have the
0: uh, the spread.
2: In between and the spread is the domain of the who 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 acts in the spread who makes their money from the spread, okay. the market makers. Okay, so the market makers are the ones in making their uh, making their living here. So now that I defined how you get to money. Okay, we can move on to interest, really, because once you know what money is, you will realize that the only fair measure for the denomination of interest is is in money, basically. So, this this is a given that's not understood by the modern economic cabal. The dollar rate of interest doesn't mean anything. Okay, any fiat rate of interest does not mean anything. Okay, first of all, the dollar is an empty promise okay? and the dollar rate of interest is the rate of payment of empty promises upon empty promises and that does not turn an empty promise non-empty by having a higher rate of non-empty promises being paid to you. You know, you might want to believe that and a lot of people do believe that, you know, but you can't. So the rate of interest only makes sense in money, and money is the most marketable good. And the most marketable good for the past 10,000 years of history has been gold. So unless the interest rate is somehow brought to a gold basis, you're not looking at a proper interest rate. All right? Good. So we've got the bid and offer there. And what are we talking about in terms of the bid and offer? What, what instrument specifically? Well, we're talking about the, uh, the gold bond, the gold bond, OK? So I'm talking about the offered and bid interest rate. So you could say uh, 5% bid and uh, 6% offered. Now I'm talking about the rate of interest here, not the price of the bond. So we'll deal with the um, the asked the asked price the asked rate of interest first. So, <coughs> what is the basis behind how we get to that number? Well, as I as as I got up there, I have got it at four percent and five percent. Sorry. Professor said that there are two different uh, mechanisms by which the bid and the offer is formed. So what causes the uh, offered price, offered rate of interest, to form? Well, the offered rate of interest exists in the context of a stock market. Now, I don't, even though you can use the stock market, I, I don't mean the stock market, I mean a capital capital market, some kind of productive enterprise market, okay? And what happens is that whoever surveys the potential returns on whatever and uh, basically makes a judgment that this gap is basically uh, exploitable. So, let's say the earnings yield on the stock market is 15%. Okay, so earnings yield is what? It's the inverse of the price earnings ratio. Okay, so just invert that and multiply it by 100. You know, it's just a rough measure. So, this gap is deemed too large by someone and they are willing to bid up the rate of offered interest, i.e., exchange bonds, issue bonds for cash, for money, in order to capture that spread. Okay? And what will happen to this spread, which is 10%, as, as, as more and more people do this, well, it will shrink and the gap uh, will get smaller. And it will get so small that at some point the next person considering this uh, proposition deems it too small uh, for, what, for, for, for their purposes and goes and does something else. And because they go and do something else, that presents the offered rate of interest to you if you want to borrow money, as it were, at the rate of interest. So, what determines the height of the offered rate of interest is basically what's going on up here, out of sight. You know, you could come up with something that that increases efficiency massively. You know, so that earnings yields suddenly go up to 50%. It would be unusual, but say it happened. So then, at that moment, you would have a. A gap of 35%, basically. So what, what's likely to happen to the offered rate of interest? It's, it's likely to, to go up, isn't it? So we talked about the offered rate of interest, and we talk about stocks. Okay. so that's the offered rate of interest. Now, let's move on to the bid rate of interest. Hmm.
1: The other thing is the fifteen percent line will come down at the same arbitrage. Uh, well, you're yeah, money, You're yeah. more and more stocks. That's going to bring down the yield up there. So it, it goes yeah. both places.
2: That's a good point. This way, I mean, this way, that will move up and that will move down. You know, so. Um, It doesn't stay at 15, obviously. Um, So you can see in the way that I've drawn it there, you're you're pulling down the earnings yield on the market and you're pulling up the rate of uh, interest. Now, what determines the bid rate? Let me just finish this off properly. I didn't finish this off. The reluctance of someone to to, to take on that spread is basically the person who's playing the role of the the, the marginal uh, entrepreneur. Yeah, you know. Yeah, marginal entrepreneur. So it's their refusal to undertake the venture that's presented to them that presents the venture to everyone else basically okay so on the uh, the bid rate of interest we've got a uh, a different mechanism okay so someone who is exchanging gold coin or money for for bonds is basically bidding up will be bidding up the exchange value of that bond. Okay, so yields, interest rates will what? They'll fall, as it were. Okay? So, at some point, that stays at zero. You'll come to a level which is where the uh, where the person who's acting in the role of the marginal actor in time preference comes in. The, what happens is the rate is, is, is brought lower until it's de- deemed too low. For the next person to consider that exchange, they, it's, it's not a sufficient return for them to exchange their their uh, their money for bonds, and that is where the role of the marginal bondholder, marginal bondholder, yes, marginal saver, in the marginal saver, comes in. So it's their reluctance that gives. Your bid rate of interest that you see on your television screen, on your trading screen. Okay, <laughs> so these two rates are actually being pulled
0: apart. Yeah, but why can the marginal bondholder reject or actually leave the bond market because he has an alternative? He can have a chunk of gold and chip off Mm. bits and pieces if he wants an income. Doesn't need the bond. Doesn't need the bond, yeah. So if the interest rate is too low, he will just say to hell with you. I'm not going to have that bond, sell it.
2: And he keeps gold coin, or she, which uh, earns nothing. But earning, earning nothing to that person is a greater preference than giving that money 2% to the government. For whatever reason. It's their reason. Okay. So these two rates are constantly being pulled apart, the bid rate and the offered rate. Not just of bonds, but of, of everything that, uh, in this, in this, in this um, arrangement. So what happens is, the, as, as you all said earlier, the market maker steps in here. So it's the market maker that basically keeps these two together. He's the one that buys at 4%, or she, and sells at five percent. But, so what you see on your screen is actually only this chap here, with his quotes. But the point is that the context with which the market maker exists is in this context. He's not just making quotes out of nowhere, you know,
1: four
2: and a half, five percent, or doesn't suddenly go to three percent, nine percent, you know, that. It exists in the context of the productivity, of capital, and time preference, basically. So that's and what...
0: Marginal productivity, marginal
2: productivity. and marginal time preference. The marginal is very, very important. It doesn't mean anything without that. So, there we have it. There we have um, the origin of interest. There is nothing particularly complicated about this, except it's a... It's just an extension of the Mengerian bid-offer spread to gold bonds and gold interest rates. And um, this, is, this is the professor's development, Pro, uh, Professor Becker's developed this theory of interest from combining Menger's observations. So this is a purely New Austrian School
0: Feketian description mm-hmm of the rates um, of interest. And it's my belief that if the son, Karl with a K, had been more interested in his father's work, he would have done it before I came it. That's my <laughs> belief. Yeah. He was a, he was a mathematician. A mathematician.
2: <laughs> Didn't concern himself with worldly affairs, probably. Um, But there you have it. There's nothing more complicated to the rate um, of interest (coughs) apart from that. It's worth mentioning, though, how um, we can summarize all of that. There. So that's basically what I've... You've got that in your notes. That's what I've tried to draw. (laughs) Uh...
0: There are several arbitrages, which you can track on this. The red red part is arbitrage between the bond market and stocks, stock market. Mm. And the blue is arbitrage...
2: Between the bond and the gold coin market.
0: Well, you can say the gold market. Mm.
2: Gold, gold market. Money, money. Uh, there's a
0: third one. What is the third?
2: Uh, apart from the market
0: maker? Yeah, the black.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the market maker in that. So uh, you, can, you can see the, 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 this picture is sufficient to describe every, every good, basically. It's just that it applies particularly in the case of gold bonds and the rate of interest. Um, this would have been completely alien to Mises. Now, as I, 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 I mentioned earlier, that um, Mises did not uh, did not approach the theory of interest from this basis at all. He starts with the concept of time preference, not marginal. But
0: originary, originary interest.
2: Yeah, he calls it that. It's
0: innate. We are born with it. And you have exactly the same time preference rate as he has, as I have, and the prodigal son mm-hmm. has the same time preference rate as Scrooge. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so this is not, it's just not true.
0: It's not true. You know. It's so obviously mm-hmm. not true.
2: And it's very tempting to want to base a theory of interest on time, because time seems to be objective. You know, a second to you is the same as a sec well, by definition it is, you know, but, but time is, is uh, it, it, it's, it's only one half of the picture to begin with. And second of all, it's not being dealt with in the Mengerian marginal basis. It's, it's assumed as an absolute, basically. Which is which is wrong
0: and Mises also says that the rate of interest is, is definitely not a market yes phenomenon yeah it's not a market process which produces it's the original interest modified by risk factors and um, maturity dates and so mm. on very. But that's half, half a law. Half a law.
2: And another thing that I want to emphasize here is that from this setup, you see that money doesn't earn interest. What you think of when you say money earns interest is actually the rate of marginal productivity of capital and marginal time preference as measured in money which is completely different to saying that money earns interest. It's not just pedantry, it's grammar. Okay. So Aristotle was right, but he didn't know why he was right, I think, you know, gold doesn't beget gold. He's absolutely right, you know. It's 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 humans that have the input into gold begetting more gold, which is what the what it looks like. But it's not. You're just doing things more efficiently to get more gold, as it were.
1: Right, I suggest you and I will have a little break here, maybe another biscuit and coffee, and then we'll uh, move on to question time. Um, let me remind you of tomorrow. Tomorrow morning we're all in the same time, same place, same day, and I'll be recapitulating everything that has been said Today, by Sandeep, by Raman, and by the professor as well, as by Rudy, into a one model. Um, <coughs> it's rather visual and it's a bit heavy. So, please ask you to be on time. <laughs>
2: okay, we'll come. We'll, 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 we'll get. We'll have the, the last question period of 4:30. It's 4:15. Yeah. Huh?